Good morning. Edwin Thomas was a master of the stage. And a matter of fact, during the later half of the 1800s, there were no other actors in America that were as famous as he was. Edwin Thomas began acting at the age of only 15. He starred in his first play, Richard III. And he very quickly established himself as a leading Shakespearean actor. He once played Hamlet on Broadway in New York City for more than 100 consecutive nights, which was an unheard of feat back then. Edwin had a brother whose name was John. John was not nearly as good of an actor as Edwin was, but they were able to unite their talents together in 1863 for a performance of Julius Caesar. In that play, John, Edwin's brother, played the part of Brutus, the assassin. And this was really kind of an eerie foreshadowing, because only two years later, in 1865, John walked into another theater, this time also to play the role of assassin. For you see, Edwin's brother John Wilkes Booth walked into Ford's theater and killed President Abraham Lincoln. Edwin was so shocked by his brother's crime that he almost never went back to the stage again. And he probably wouldn't have gone back to the stage again if it hadn't been for a strange twist of fate a few years later. You see, Edwin Thomas Booth was at a railway station in Philadelphia. And as he was waiting for the train, he noticed there a young dressed, uh, well-dressed young man that was standing waiting for the train to come in. And as the train was coming closer, the young man moved closer to the edge of the platform. And as the young man turned, he lost his footing and he fell off the platform onto the railway tracks. And Edwin Thomas Booth, not thinking of his own safety, ran forward, jumped off the platform, scooped up this young man in his arms and threw him back onto the platform and jumped up himself just as the train came in, saving this young man's life. The two of them looked at each other and this young man saw that it was the famous Edwin Thomas Booth that had saved him. And a few years later, he received a letter from the then Ulysses S. Grant thanking Edwin Thomas Booth for saving the life of Robert Todd Lincoln, the son of Abraham Lincoln. Isn't it amazing? Two brothers... They grew up in the same home. They had the same parents. They had pretty much the same upbringing. They were both actors. And yet one son chose to kill and one son chose to save. One chose to take life and the other chose to give life. And all through the Bible we see that same story repeated. That we are not the product of our upbringing. But ultimately in life, you are the choices that you make in life. For example, Abel and Cain were both sons of Adam. But Abel chose God and Cain chose murder. Abraham and Lot were brothers. Abraham chose God. Lot chose Sodom. David and Saul were both kings of Israel. David chose God. Saul chose power. Peter and Judas were both disciples. They were both followers of Jesus Christ. They lived with him. They walked with him for three years. 
And yet Peter chose God and Judas chose to betray Jesus for just a few coins. We see this time and time and time again that we are ultimately the choices that we make in life. In Hebrew language, the words that we get for talking about orientation or position are derived from the Hebrew names for parts of the body. So let me give you an example of that. If you want to say in Hebrew that you are first, you say literally in Hebrew that you are the head. That's very much like in English when we say that someone is the head of the class. It means they're first, right? Because usually the head comes first. In Hebrew, if you are to say that you are beside someone, you say literally that you are to the hand of the person. If you say in Hebrew that someone is in front of you, then you say that that person is literally to the face of you. The Hebrew word for back is the word akarit. Akarit. That's if you looked at your bulletin and you saw this funny word on the front of it, that's what it means. It's the Hebrew word for back. But in Hebrew, it has a much greater meaning than simply your back. It means that which comes after final consequences. And this is a word that we see very often used in the Bible. It's used 65 times in the Old Testament. But 13 times, or 20% of the time, it's used in one book. What do you think that book is? It's the book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs. In fact, if you were to sum up the entire book of Proverbs, it can be summed up in Proverbs 19.20, which says, Listen to advice and accept instruction, and in the end, in other words, in the akarite, you will be wise. Basically what that says is make decisions today in light of the Akarit. Make decisions in life today based on what that decision will mean in the future. I want to ask you a simple question today. Are you living your life today in light of the Akarit? Are you making wise choices today in light of the consequences of those choices. This week and next week, we're going to be talking about making tough choices. But I want you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 7, verse 6 to 8, and then we'll not read the whole story. We'll jump down to verse 21 to 23. It's on the screen behind me. You can follow along. I am going to try to make this message as G-rated as possible this morning. Proverbs 7, verse 6 says this. At the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice. I saw among the simple. I noticed among the young men a youth who lacked judgment. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. And then we'll jump down to the end. With pervasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox going into the slaughter, like a deer stepping into the noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. First thing I want to talk today is seeing the accurate. Do you see the results of the decisions that you are making in life? In this story, it says that Solomon 
was in his palace and he was looking out through the lattice. Now, what's the lattice? I think you know that a lattice is kind of a, a network of slats. In Kuwait, these are very common, that they put them in homes. And what the lattice does, it allows you to see outside from the house, but it doesn't allow people from outside to see into the house. Okay? So, so it's a way of, of being able to look out, but not be seen that you're looking out. And so Solomon is sitting there, and it says he's looking out through this lattice, and he sees this young man coming down the road. And here he comes, he's coming down the road, and then he sees that from here, but then he looks down at the end of the road and sees this woman. And this woman is just waiting for him. And it's as if a trap has been set. And Solomon sees it all. He sees not only what is happening, but he sees what will happen. He has a unique perspective. You see, Solomon saw something that that young man did not see as he was walking along the road that day. Solomon saw his acarite. I remember a time when, uh, when I took one of my daughters fishing. And we were fishing off this dock. And, you know, we had just this little fishing pole and the worm was on the hook. And we were catching just little tiny fish. But, but as we were fishing, suddenly this huge shadow came along from underneath the dock. And it was this huge fish. And this huge fish went right up to the worm and then stopped. And it was as if it was just sitting there looking at the worm. I like this cartoon up here. It was kind of like that. No, the, the fish was looking at the worm. And it was thinking to itself, should I eat this worm or shouldn't I eat this worm? And, and I'm up there on the dock saying, eat the worm, eat the worm. And slowly it just opened up its mouth and it grabbed it. A few minutes later, that fish was on the dock, it was cut open, and a few minutes later, it was on the barbecue. You see, when that fish saw the worm, it thought lunch. And when I saw the fish looking at the worm, I thought lunch, right? I saw something that day that that fish did not see. You see, I saw that fish's acarite. I saw the ending. There are choices in life that we make, and it may look like a normal and a rational thing to do at the time, but in light of the accurate, it's a wrong choice to make. For example, I'm standing up here in front of you today, and you may think that I'm dressed appropriately. I have on a, a tie, and I, I, you know, I have on reasonable clothing. However... If I was to leave here today, and as I'm walking down the center aisle, if someone notices that I have a huge tear down the back of my trousers, your opinion of my clothing is going to be changed radically by my acarite, right? By, by what you see behind me. What looks good from the front will be seen, and everyone's looking now, it's like, <laughs> excuse me. What looks good from the front will, will, will be radically changed by the view from the back. And that's what I'm trying to say to you today. That you have to make decisions in light of the ochre, in light of the consequences of those decisions. Now, we are a community of grace. And you know what? I, I want you to listen to me. Listen to me. I'm not pointing fingers today. I want to talk about three decisions that I, as a person, have had to make in life. And they are three decisions that all of us in life have to make. 
you know I'm not a fire and brimstone kind of a preacher. You know I'm not going to stand up here and yell at anybody. So I want you to hear that. I want you to receive what is about to be said in the context that it's given in the context of grace. But let me talk about three decisions that people very often make where they don't understand the akarite. Okay? Number one is sex outside of marriage. I mean, I am always amazed at how intelligent people can make such dumb choices when it comes to sex. The devil wants to make sex so appealing, doesn't he? That's the example given in this story. You see this young man coming down the road, and here's this lady that's waiting for him. And I just want to say, I'm not picking on ladies. This role could have been reversed very easily. But... If you read the part in between, it says that when the young man meets this woman, she says, oh, my husband is gone for the weekend and, and, you know, everything is prepared at home. I've made my fellowship offerings. In other words, this would like, be like in today's language saying a married woman going up to a single man and saying, why don't you come over to my house after church for Bible study? Yeah, we're just going to sit and we're going to read the Bible together and have some fellowship together and, and see where things go from there. So what's wrong with two consenting adults? They could have argued, I had needs to fulfill, I wanted to, you know. What's wrong with two consenting adults, you know? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. The acarite. That's what's wrong with it. Because sex outside of marriage is always sin. And sex outside of marriage always leads to consequences. Always. It always ends badly. Proverbs 5.3 says, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end she's bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. At the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. I heard a story in 1984 of a businessman who was visiting New York City. And he, he was tired and he was lonely after the business meeting and so he went to a local bar and there he met an attractive young woman and this woman invited him back to her apartment for a few drinks and the businessman thought sure that's a good idea and he followed her back to his apartment but as soon as he walked through the door there were two armed men there waiting for him and they beat him and they knocked him unconscious and they held him for ransom for two weeks they sent notes to his wife demanding money and or, or else they would kill him. And in the end, they ended up beating him to death. Do you think that businessman, if he had seen himself being abused, if he had seen himself being beaten, do you think there's anything in the world that would have convinced him to have gone back to that room? If that businessman had seen what was waiting for him there in that apartment, do you think there's anything in the world? Wild horses couldn't have dragged him to that apartment that night. But the problem was he didn't see it. He didn't see his acarite. There's a lot of people who make dumb choices when it comes to sex. When I was in seminary, I was doing an internship in a church in Toronto. And uh, I did that internship for two, three years. And then after that internship, I, was, I graduated and I went to my first church, my first full-time youth ministry position. And that was for two years. So I was in one church in Toronto and I was in one church in Hamilton. And then Naomi and I ended up going on the ship, the Dulas, and we left the country. Years after 
we had gone to the doulos, we had come back, I heard in one week what had happened to those two churches after we had been there, a few years after we had been there. In the first church, it was found out that the senior pastor was sleeping with people he was counseling. And in the second church, it was found that the youth pastor had run off with the senior pastor's wife. Both of those churches were devastated. Both of those churches were divided. And both of those churches never really recovered. Devastated. Families broken. People's faith shattered. People left the church and never returned in both of those situations because two people made very bad decisions. Remember the story of Amnon and Tamar in 2 Samuel 13? Amnon wanted his half-sister Tamar and oh, he desired her. And a friend comes along and says, well, Amnon, if you want her, just go ahead and take her. And so he does And then it says in the very next verse that Amnon despised her. When he took what he wanted, it didn't make him happy. It made him more miserable. And that is what sex outside of marriage does. It's like drinking seawater. It doesn't satisfy the thirst. It only increases the appetite. And you always end up worse off than you were before. Look around, it's very easy to see the effects that this choice makes on people's lives. I could give a whole list of things that are a problem. Sex inside of marriage, none of these things are an issue. When we express our intimacy as God intended us to. So what do you do when you make this choice? And it's a a choice that all of us face every day. Are you going to be faithful? Are you going to be pure? You remember the accurate. Remember the accurate. Young people, I want to speak especially to you. Don't let anybody ever make fun of you because you're a virgin. I mean, I heard this one girl once say, you know what, I can always become like you, but you can never become like me again. The greatest gift that you can give your spouse on the day of your marriage is to look them in the eye and say, I kept myself for you. I kept myself pure for you. It is the greatest gift you can possibly offer. Remember the accurate when it comes to sex outside of marriage. But number two, substance abuse. That's another decision that we commonly make. Most often, in terms of substance abuse, people talk about alcoholism and turning to alcohol. I'm sure we've all seen the beer commercials. I mean, you just have to watch the Super Bowl. They're the best commercials on television, usually. And they're always the same. Usually there's this person, and they're sad, and they're depressed. But then they find some beer, they drink the beer, and suddenly they're surrounded by beautiful women, and they're having the time of their life. You know, that's kind of what the commercial sells. If you buy our product, you'll be happy, you'll be successful, you'll live a wonderful life. And it's a terrible lie. Proverbs 23:31 says, Do not gaze at wine when it's red. When it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly, in the end it bites like a snake, poisons like a viper. I have seen firsthand the results of this lie. When I was uh, going to university, I had a roommate that used to drink too much. 
He would go off to the pub and he would come back and kind of stagger in and he usually end up throwing up in his bed and making an absolute fool of himself. But you know what? A guy that was two doors down from me in that dorm room wasn't so lucky. He went out to a pub and he drank too much and on his way back, he fell unconscious in a back alley. He ended up vomiting and inhaling the vomit and he ended up choking to death. They found him the next morning. I worked in downtown Toronto among the street people, among people who had given up on life. They turned to alcohol. They'd become alcoholics. They would go out and they would beg all day just to make enough money so that they could buy a little bit of booze to get them through the night. Livers destroyed, lives ruined. I've seen that. I've seen that. Please understand what I'm saying here. I'm talking about substance abuse. I am not saying that God is going to strike you dead if you have a drink. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm not even saying necessarily that it's wrong to have a glass of, a little glass of wine with a meal. If you look at the Bible, the Bible is, it talks a lot about the abuse of alcohol, but it doesn't talk a lot about the use of alcohol. As a matter of fact, in the Mediterranean, the time when the Bible was written, wine was a very common thing. Children grew up drinking wine. It did not have the same stigma that it has today. The reason was is that you couldn't drink water in those days. Water sat around in cisterns. It, it got diseased. And so really one of the only things that you could drink was fermented grape juice. They would grow the grapes once a year and then they would bottle the grapes and it would do two things. In the days before refrigeration, folks, let's face it. If you bottle grape juice, it's either going to become vinegar or it's going to become wine, right? And so that was one of the only options they had for them in terms of drink. And so drinking wine was a very common thing. However, drunkenness was spoken of as being a great sin. So how do you know? How do you know if it's a sin or not a sin? Well, let me, let me, let me ask you a few questions. If someone offers you a drink and you want to take that drink because you want to feel the effects of alcohol, then it's sin. If you want to feel the effect of the alcohol in your system, then it's sin. If you drink and you are influenced by that drink, that is, if you know that having taken that drink, that you are going to become under the influence of alcohol, then it's sin. Because the Bible says very clearly that we, we aren't to, be, that we aren't to uh, get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words... Don't give yourself to something that's going to take you down a road that you don't want to go. Don't get under the influence of any other thing other than the Spirit of God in your life. If you are under the age, if you're a young person and someone offers you a drink, it's illegal. It's sin. You can't take it. Case closed. If you're going to be driving a car and you know that taking that drink is going to mean that, 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 that it's illegal, you can't take it. It's a sin. If you know that there's someone that would be affected by you taking that drink, even a glass of wine, if there's someone there that has a really strong opinion about that, and you know that in doing that, that you're going to damage their faith, then it's a sin. Romans speaks very specifically about that. Where do I stand on this issue? I've made a personal stand that because of what I have seen in my life, because of working on the streets... Of, of Toronto and seeing that what the abuse of alcohol does, I have made a decision that I will never drink anything that has alcohol in it. That's my personal stance. 
I believe that those who aspire to a position of leadership, that's also an important stance to take so that you don't cause anyone to stumble. But, you know, again, the issue is abuse and not use. Is it absolutely, is God going to strike you dead for having a glass of wine at a meal? No. Sex outside of marriage. Substance abuse, number two. A third choice that a lot of people make is the choice whether or not to take up smoking. If smoking is a very common thing. I know that, that, you know, when you're a young person, probably your friends, some of your friends might have smoked. I mean, today, in this day and age, it's, it's becoming more rare, but certainly when a lot of you were growing up, it was a fairly common thing. Next to the, the alcohol commercials, it used to be the cigarette commercials 20 years ago that were the most appealing, right? The Marlboro Man on his horse, riding in the open, you know, outback, and, and, and he was strong, and he had that cigarette in his mouth, and it was so free, and it was so clean, and it was such a lie. You know what happened to the Marlboro Man? There was, there was a, a series on television a few years ago on, on old commercials. What actually happened to the Marlboro Man, the actual actor who did those commercials? He died of lung cancer. The special showed him in this hospital room in Sydney, Australia, surrounded by his family, his little girls watching him as he took his last breaths, choking, coughing, spitting up, dying of lung cancer. Again, I'm not saying that smoking is an unforgivable sin. I'm not trying to bring condemnation on people's head. I, I think you recognize that it's an addiction. That a lot of people have made this choice and they have a hard time unmaking that choice. They have a hard time getting out of that choice. When I was in high school, my father came home one day from work and he announced to all of us that he was going to start smoking. My grandfather smoked a pipe his entire life. And so my dad had gone out and he bought this set of very expensive pipes, these beautifully ivory hand-carved pipes, and he bought all this tobacco. And, and his idea was that he was going to come home from work and he was going to sit in his office and smoke his pipe, just like my grandfather, just like his father had done. But I had seen a special on TV that smoking caused cancer. So one day when my dad was at work, I went into his office and I opened up his drawer and I took all those beautiful expensive pipes and I smashed them. And then I took the tobacco and I threw it in the garbage. And when my dad came home from work that night, I met him at the door and I said, the first thing I said to him was, Dad, I've broken all your pipes, I've thrown out all your tobacco, I don't want you to die from lung cancer. And do you think that helped? No. <laughs> I was in deep, deep trouble. <laughs> and I really paid for that act. But you know what? Ten years later, when my grandfather died of lung cancer, this strong, healthy man reduced by cancer to this hollow shell, at his funeral, my dad came up beside me and said, you know what? You were right. You were right. I didn't see it at the time, but you were right. Thank you for helping me not to make that bad decision. Seeing the accurate, number one. But number two, living in light of the accurate. I could go on and I could give a lot more examples. I could talk in the Bible of the fact that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. I could talk about David who destroyed the kingdom of Israel for the sake of lust. I could talk about Samson who was blinded and who was put to death. He died 
because he bought the lie of an attractive woman. I could talk about Judas who sold his soul for a handful of coins. The list goes on and on and on. What I'm trying to say this morning is that when we make choices in life, we have to make choices in light of the accurate. We have to make choices in light of where that decision takes you, where that decision leads you. If you get in your car <clears throat> after church today and you drive out to Tilbury and you go out to the 401, you are going to see a sign there that says London. Does that mean that you are in London? No. It means that if you get on that road, that road will take you to London. And God, in His Word, has placed signposts over the choices that we make in life. And when we take those decisions, we have to pay attention to those signposts. That if a sign says London, that means get on that road, eventually you will get to London. And there are choices where God has said death. Get on this road, that's where this decision leads you. Take this path, there's going to be consequences. Dire, severe, permanent consequences. God wants us to make good choices. Robert Frost years ago wrote a poem called The Road Not Taken. Let me just read to you that poem. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that was passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day yet knowing how way leads to way I doubted if I should ever come back. But then listen to this last verse. I shall be telling this with a sigh, that somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Robert Frost there is saying that we all face choices in life. You may come to a crossroad when you are thinking, you know, do I remain faithful or do I not? Do I follow God's word when it says, don't do this or do I not? That we face these crossroads in life. When you come to those crossroads, take the higher path. Take the road less traveled. Take, as the Bible says, the narrow way, not the broad way that leads to destruction. Make wise choices. Solomon looked out through the lattice. He saw this young man coming down the road. He saw what that choice would be. And the Bible tells us that since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that the host of heaven sit and they stare at us through the latticework. And they see the choices that we make in life. In light of such a great cloud of witnesses, choose carefully. Choose carefully. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. 
that is a signpost for each one of us, a signpost, a signpost pointing in the way of life and away from the path of destruction. Father, I've tried to speak today of, of decisions that we all make. There are so many others that I could have spoken about. But Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to evaluate our lives, to see if there are things that we are doing, if there are choices that we are making in life that are leading us away from you, that are leading us down roads that we do not want to travel. Father, all of us have decisions to make. Every day of our lives, we have decisions to make. And Father, we are the product of the decisions that we make in life. We are ultimately the decisions that we make our character, our conduct, our integrity. So, Father, help us to choose wisely. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us again. Came sin, who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Love so amazing, love so amazing, Jesus Messiah. Sinners, the 
Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, the rescue for sinners, the ransom from Jesus Messiah, Lord of all. Thanks, Jesus Messiah.